Now we'll read God's Word together, our text. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. A few months ago in a little church down in Texas, they scheduled a revival meeting. And the emphasis of this revival meeting was, uh, as far as the evangelist was concerned, was on um, getting church members uh, saved. So every service began with this question, are you sure you are a Christian? And our long invitations were directed to that question, are you sure you're a Christian? Almost everybody in the church came forward to say that they did not believe that they had been saved and needed to be saved and rebaptized. Of this group, in, was the pastor and the pastor's wife and the deacons, most of the, 75% of the deacons. Now there was a man who was involved in that, who, who did not doubt his salvation, who was commenting on what happened in his church, Baptist church down near Dallas. And, and, and I'm trying to quote as best I can what he said. He said, I tried to evaluate what went on in my church. He said, I, I was rocked, I was shaken by the fact that the people to whom I had looked for spiritual guidance and, and spiritual help all of my life, my pastor, my deacons, all came forward to say that they had no valid spiritual experience. He said, I have come to the conclusion in, in my own mind that what we needed that week was not salvation, but the assurance of it. What we needed was not a conviction that we were lost, but we needed somebody to come and help us have assurance that we were saved. What we needed was not an awareness of our lostness, but some security and assurance of our savedness. Now, in this age of tremendous insecurity, there's a great deal of insecurity in the church. I mean, does it make you feel uncomfortable when somebody says to you or asks you, are you sure you're a Christian? Do you avoid that subject? How does that make you feel? And how many times have you answered that question like this? Well, I hope I am. I try to be or I, I, uh, I, I think I am. There's a great deal of insecurity even in the church. A recent poll was taken among evangelicals and the question was, if you were to die tonight, are you sure you'd go to heaven? 90% of evangelicals polled said they were not sure that if they were to die, they'd go to heaven. And most of them answered that they didn't think that anybody could ever really be sure that he would go to heaven if he died. Now how does that stack up against such statements from Scripture as this? 
I know whom I have believed and absolutely am convinced that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor height nor depth, nor principalities or powers or things present or things to come or any other creature is able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Well, it just may be that some people who have doubt and insecurity about their salvation have come to the Lord or come to the Christian faith from a purely legal standpoint. That is, to some people, their salvation is based purely on what they do. That is, my salvation depends on my keeping a body of rules or regulations or requirements or laws and a person whose salvation is dependent upon what he does, upon his ability to keep certain rules and regulations and laws will never be secure. He'll never know for sure. There will always be doubt and insecurity. The New Testament writer did not approach it from that perspective. As a matter of fact, the New Testament writer approached salvation from a personal perspective. To them, the way you came to know God was through your faith in Jesus Christ so that knowledge of God was on the basis of their relationship with Jesus. And whenever a person comes to know God through his knowledge of Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, he can say, I know whom I have believed. Now, it's not I know what I have believed, but I know whom I have believed. And because I know him and what he's like, I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him. So that the New Testament writer had security or assurance because he came to know God through Jesus. Now the second thing about that New Testament writer or the New Testament Christian was not just his knowledge of God through Jesus, but the thing that marked out that New Testament Christian was his knowledge of the Holy Spirit. That's where I want to spend the rest of the time this morning. They knew the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is the source of experiential assurance. We know, our, we know we have been saved because we know the Holy Spirit. Now in this text there are two ways that a person can have assurance. And the first is because of the very presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Now this reception that he's talking about, he says, you have received the Spirit. This reception he's talking about is a reception of the Holy Spirit that takes place at a specific time. And this specific time is at the very moment you receive Jesus Christ into your life, at the very moment you are born again, you have a personal relationship of salvation, at that moment 
you receive the precious gift, the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit in the same act of faith that saves you. You receive the Holy Spirit, the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is not by nature a spirit of bondage. Did you notice that? He said the Holy Spirit is not by nature a spirit of slavery. If he were a spirit of slavery, that would lead us again, underline again, that's the key word in the verse, if he were a spirit of bondage, he would lead us again to a spirit of fear. It would be no different than it was before we were saved. Now what he means is this, watch this. If the Holy Spirit were by nature a spirit of bondage, he would lead us to a spirit of fear because he would say if he were a spirit of bondage, the Holy Spirit would be coming into our life to remind us, to just, to, just to make us aware of this body of rules that we're supposed to keep. Now when the Holy Spirit comes to live in our life, He doesn't come just to make us aware of some rules or regulations or requirements, some body of rules to keep. If that were the case, that would lead us to fear. It would be, the word is the servile fear of a, of a slave before his master. And he's thinking to himself, if I break these rules, if I don't keep every one of these requirements, if I don't observe all of these rituals and rules, then there's going to come down the, the lash, the, the rod of this cruel slave master upon my back. Paul said that the Holy Spirit is not like that. Rather, the Holy Spirit, he said, is the spirit of adoption. Now, Paul uses this term in the, in the, in the Greek. It's a combination of words. One Greek word uh, translated, but a combination of words that means to place as a son. Now, Paul uses this theological term that he from his understanding of the Roman system, because you see the Jews didn't adopt uh, children. That wasn't in their practice, but the Romans did. And it was a very detailed and complicated process because in the Roman system, the father had absolute authority and complete control. It doesn't matter how old you are or were, your father still had absolute authority an absolute control of, over your life in the Roman system. So it's very difficult and complicated for one father to pass that over to another father. And what they did was this. The natural father and his son and the adopting father would go into some kind of a courtroom setting and the natural father would sell his son three times and he'd buy him back twice. I guess that's where the the idea of going once, going twice, and gone comes in, a, in an auction. But this father would sell his son twice, and then he'd buy him back. But on the third time, just to show that the process was full and complete, they went through this thing. On the third time, he would sell his son. And that son, with all the rights and the privileges of sonship, would be transferred from the natural father to the adopting father. Now this is what William Barclay says about it. Watch this. 
The adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family. In the most literal sense and in the most binding legal way, he got a new father. It followed that he became heir to his new father's estate, even if other sons were afterwards born who were real blood relations. It did not affect his rights. He was inalienably co-heir with them. In law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. For instance, legally all debts were counseled. They were wiped out as if they had never been. The adopted person was regarded as a new person entering into a new life which the past had nothing to do. In the eyes of the law, the adopted person was literally and absolutely the son of his new father. Now we are not by nature children of God. We are by nature children of wrath. And as Jesus said, we're sons of the evil one. But in the process of adoption, theological process, that authority has been transferred over to the Lord, to Jesus. At home, and the little kid didn't know what was going on, but the father is, drove up to the front of the house and he, and he got his little boy and hit him in his arms. He said, see that house? That's your house. You're never going to ever be without a home. You see, we're your parents. You're never going to be without parents. And he took him inside and he opened the door to the pantry and it's full of food. He said, see that food? That's your food. You're never going to be hungry again. And he took him up to the nursery and went in and said, see this room? That's your room. You're always going to have a place to stay. And he took him over to the crib. He said, see that crib? That's your crib. You're always going to have a bed. And he opened up the closet and he said, see, that, see those... Uh, those blankets and that cover, that's, those are your blankets. You're never going to be cold because everything I've got is yours. Now in adoption, God says to us, everything we ha He has belongs to us as His sons. Now what part does the, does the Holy Spirit play in that? The scripture says that the Holy Spirit makes that real to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit makes you aware that this great, awesome God of the universe is your Father. And by His presence in your life, His very presence there causes you to know that God is your Father. And He says that the first thing He does when He comes to live in your heart is cry out, Abba, and there are two illustrations of it in the Bible, what I'm talking about. One is in the Old Testament at Sinai where God gives the law. And the other is in the New Testament at Pentecost where God gives the Holy Spirit. Now God's people are gathered around Sinai and they're waiting for the terms of the covenant and God comes near that mountain where they are, and they trembled, they were fearful. They quaked at, as God drew near them. That's the way the law, the giving of the law, affects man. 
it causes him to tremble. It causes him to fear. It makes him aware of his own lack of preparation, his own inadequacy, his own poverty. When in the giving of the law, he feels, I can't keep the law. I can't measure up to the demands of a holy God. But when God gave the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it was totally different. They were in this upper room, and that as the Holy Spirit came upon them, the Scripture says that their faces were radiant. They were not afraid. They were bold and courageous, and they poured out into the streets, shouting and singing and rejoicing and preaching because God gave the Holy Spirit, and the very presence of the Holy Spirit brings boldness and assurance and courage and joy. His very presence. Now the second way that we have assurance is by the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now he brings to, to our mind in this text two spirits. He mentions two spirits. When he says the Holy Spirit himself, he's talking about, when he says the Spirit himself, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But when he says, bears witness with our spirit, our spirit is a reference to the human spirit. Now let me watch this. Let me show you what the human spirit is. The human spirit is man's capacity to know God. The ability of man, for man to relate to God, it is his capacity to sense the things of God and relate to God. Now by sin... The human spirit is dead. The Bible refers to the fact that man is dead in trespasses and sins. Now here is an unbeliever, maybe an intellectual unbeliever, and he can't comprehend, he doesn't understand, you know, how could we be Christians? How could you believe something, accept something like that just by faith? He said, you show me, help me to understand it. But you see, a, a person who has a dead spirit can no more understand and relate to God than a dead man can work an, an algebra equation or drive a car. It's just impossible. The human spirit dies when we sin. But the Bible says that the human spirit is quickened, is made alive, is resurrected when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you at the point of salvation. That is, the moment you are saved, your dead capacity to know God, your dead human spirit is made alive. Now, watch this. Therefore, there are two voices inside of you speaking. Your human spirit and the Holy Spirit. And they speak in concert. He says that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, bears witness not to your spirit, but with it. So that the Holy Spirit inside of you in concert bears witness with your spirit that you are the children of God. You know inside of you when you're saved and the Holy Spirit confirms that. Now our text gives us two names, two words that are translated son or children. Watch this carefully. In verse 15, he uses a word that refers, that, that is translated in the English, son. 
And it refers to position or legal standing. And it's a reference to, calls attention to the process of adoption that I've just talked about. So that by, because we are adopted into the family of God, we have legal standing or position with God. But in verse 16, he uses a word that is translated children. And it calls attention not to something legal, it calls attention to birth. It calls attention to this new birth that occurs. So that one has to do with position before God, and the other has to do with communion with God. Now watch carefully. When we are born again and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, we, have, we are born again and have communion and fellowship with God. Not only do I have position or standing legally, but I have communion and fellowship with my Father. And there's an interesting verse in the book of Ephesians. It's chapter 2, verse 18. It, says like th it goes like this. He says, By one Spirit we have access to the Father. Now, it's, it's, when you see it in the context, it has tremendous import because two verses prior to that, he says that we have access to God, but in verse 18 he says that we have access to the Father and he makes reference to this communion that man who is born again has with God as son with Father. And the word access is a word that can be translated introduction, but there's more than just somebody introducing somebody. See if you can picture this in your mind. Here's a father, a new father in the delivery room. He's got his gown on, he's got his mask on, he's got his hat on, he's got his rubber gloves. And all of a sudden, that doctor has in his hands bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And there's this little wet, screaming, bloody uh, baby in his hands. And he takes that baby and he walks over to the father standing there. And he places that baby in his father's arms and there is instant love and there is instant bondage something just happens there with that father and that baby as a matter of fact psychologists tell us that if that there is bonding between a child and his parents before they're born he's born and psychologists are encouraging I read an article recently that the father and the mother communicate with the child in the mother's womb before the child's ever delivered. That there is bonding even then. Something just miraculous and wonderful occurs when that doctor places that baby in the hand of the father. There is instantaneous bonding and communication. Now watch carefully. Something happens at the moment of salvation that brings instantaneous communication and bonding and fellowship between the believer and the Heavenly Father. Instantaneous. And the Holy Spirit just brings that witness again and again through the Christian life to the believer. Now how does it happen? 
Well, it happens sometime when you're, when you're reading Scripture. You know, there's sometimes, I'm just talking about, I can't talk for you, but I can talk for me. Sometimes when I'm reading Scripture and I'm re- going through God's Word, there have just been those times when the Holy Spirit has just taken that Word and made it alive in my heart. And I just knew that God was speaking to me. It happens sometime when you pray. Now, there are a lot of times, I must confess, when I just say words, but there are times in prayer when I'm praying that I just know that I'm talking to God and I can just hear God talking to me. And it happens sometime in worship. So you come in here and worship. I just can't tell you the number of times that I've just, you know, had some tremendous need. Maybe I was going through some difficult time in my life and I've been in worship service and there's just been a song or something that somebody said in prayer or a message somebody preached that just, I just knew that God was speaking to me. Bearing witness the Holy Spirit in me to my spirit or with my spirit. Now, I need to get to some application that I'm through. One thing I need to say quickly is this. That assurance of your salvation is not essential for salvation. Now, I need to say this carefully. I believe there are going to be a lot of people in heaven who when they get to heaven are going to be there who never had assurance on earth of their salvation. I know a woman, I could call her name, who has never been assured of salvation. She lives in insecurity and I know one of these days I'm going to see her in heaven. I just know she's saved. Now if assurance is essential to salvation, we'd have to testify, we'd have to do this, we'd have to say the way you get saved is this, repentance from sin, faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ and assurance. It's not essential. But I need to say right up front this and you need to nail this down in your own mind I think. That every child of God, every child of God, ought to be able to walk through this life confident and assured of his salvation because a fearful, doubting, insecure Christian is a terrible testimony to the power and grace of God. So why is it that some people don't have assurance of their salvation? Well, I think there's three answers to that and that's the end. I think it's because, in the first place, some are ignorant of Scripture. They don't even know that, you know, that you you can have assurance. Well, this is why, Paul, John said, this is why I have written that you may know. I mean, every one of us has the Scripture, and the Scripture is there to give assurance. We may be ignorant of it. Secondly, I think some people are insecure about their salvation, because they feel unworthy. And they kind of say to themselves, now how could God love me? And how could He save me? Terrible, bad person I am. You know, kind of a down in the mouth person. You heard about old Zeb? Zeb's friend kept witnessing to him about being saved, and Zeb had nothing, he didn't want anything, he just turned him off all the time. Finally, one day, Zeb's friend said to him, he said, Doesn't it make any difference to you that God? loves you? Doesn't that soften your heart just a little bit? Old Zeb said, you mean you're trying to tell me that God loves me and he don't even know me? Zeb's friend said, believe me, Zeb, it'd be a lot easier for God to love you not knowing you than if he knows you like I know you. 
Now, but but Zeb's friend was wrong. God knows you, and, and He knows everything about you. And the one who knows you best loves you most. Isn't that amazing? That the God who knows you, everything about you, loves you more than anybody else in the whole world. You don't have to feel unworthy. And I think that perhaps some of us feel insecure is because we are quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. Now to grieve the Holy Spirit means to cause Him hurt or pain or sadness. To quench the Holy Spirit means to suppress Him or to stifle Him. Now when a person has unconfessed sin in his life, that sin in his life grieves the Holy Spirit and quenches the Holy Spirit. The author of the book of Proverbs said, He that conceals his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses his sin and renounces it shall find mercy. So if you have sin in your life, and you're living in disobedience to God, and you are not living as the Holy Spirit wants you to live, you are grieving Him and quenching Him and preventing Him from doing His work. Now what is His work? Well, I've just told you. His work is to make you assured. But if you are quenching the Holy Spirit, if you have sin in your life that give, you give it an uncontested place, then you are preventing him from doing what he lives in you to do. And listen carefully. I, the people that I know who are the most assured and confident and secure about their salvation are the people who are walking in the Spirit who are living in the Spirit and who are obeying the Holy Spirit and who are allowing the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in them. I tell you what, there's not a single person alive, I believe, who is insecure if he is walking under the Spirit's control. For when you are living by the Spirit obedient to Him, He's going to be free, he's going to be able to bring confidence and assurance. Maybe we just need to take a look today at our life. Now back to the proposition. Every one of you this morning, every one of you ought to, who are born again, who are Christians, ought to walk through this life confident and assured. So when these evangelists come and ask the question doesn't stir you up to fear every child of God ought to walk through this life with confidence because a troubled fearful insecure Christian is a terrible testimony to the grace and the power of God let's pray together Heavenly Father, I thank you for our salvation, your salvation brought to us. But Father, that salvation 
is made of none effect to others if we're not confident of it. So I pray today that your Holy Spirit would have the freedom and the, and the power and the right to give to us a sense of security and confidence and assurance. Convict us where we're lost. Assure us where we're saved. I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations this morning. Listen carefully. The first invitation is for you to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. There has to be a point of time where you do that. There must be a time, a point of time, where you repent, that is, turn from the life where you've been in control and trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. At the moment you act in faith and trust in Him, He comes to indwell you in the innermost part of your being. Have you ever done that? We invite you to come receiving Christ this morning. The second invitation is for Christian people who who just need to get rightly related to the Holy Spirit, who are living in disobedience to God, who have sin unconfessed. Therefore, you're insecure, doubtful, and fearful. And there may be some who need to come this morning as an act of obedience to the Holy Spirit to place your life in the church. And that's the first thing that you need to do today is in, in, in obedience is is to place your life here. We're going to pray that you will, that you'll be obedient to God while we stand to sing. I invite you to come.